0: Hello and welcome to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. I'm Martha Sutsui Billens, and today's episode is with Vera Ferreira and Hugo Cardoso. Hugo Cardoso is a researcher and professor at the University of Lisbon. He specializes in Portuguese-based Creole spoken in South Asia, and he has worked closely with the Creole-speaking communities of Diu and Kerala in India and more recently with the Portuguese burger community in eastern Sri Lanka. He is also a depositor at the Endangered Languages Archive and a recipient of the Endangered Languages Documentation Program Grant. If you want to hear more about Hugo's work, you can check out episode four of Field Notes. And Vera Ferreira is the head of the Interdisciplinary Center for Social and Language Documentation and she is also the ELDP Archive Support and Development Officer at the Endangered Languages Archive. She has worked with several communities in Europe, most notably the Mendrico, Fala, and Bavarian communities, and she is also a depositor at the Endangered Languages Archive. If you want to learn more about Vera's work, you can check out episode two of Field Notes. In this episode, I met up with Vera and Hugo in Lisbon and we discussed some listener questions, including how to share collected data in a meaningful way with communities and how to deal with power imbalances whilst in the field. Thank you to everyone who wrote in with questions. We actually had so many questions that we'll be splitting all of the questions over two episodes. So the first half will be in this episode, episode nine, and then the next half will be next week in episode 10. If you have a question about linguistic fieldwork, you can email it to us at fieldnotespod at gmail.com. This is so exciting. (laughs) Reunited in Lisbon. Yes. (laughs) And I think it's worth mentioning that this is just based on our own experiences.
1: Right. It does not represent best practices or whatever, that people think we are guiding them in something. Yeah. It's w- what has worked for us and not...
2: Or even if you have interesting things to say, it's not the full range yeah, of what exactly. people yeah. should be aware of. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah
0: exactly. So. so it's not that what we are suggesting is the only way to do something, but it's just... So Man. keep listening to the podcast. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so we can find other people with different ideas. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so to start, the first listener question is, what do people do with the data they collect after fieldwork is over? And if the research data can be shared, how can it be shared with the speakers or the community in a way that makes it meaningful for them?
1: Well, I think um, I think I'm going to start. There's a lot of things you can do with the data and from the archive perspective and from the documentation perspective, I would say the first thing is to put everything in the archive, make your data available in an archive. This allows other researchers to access the materials, but also if the community has internet access, they can also access the materials immediately The other thing is that you can develop a lot of things out of the materials that you have archived. So if the materials are available, you can create, for instance, apps for the community based on what you have recorded and preserved. But I think the most important thing is that you put the materials in the archive. They are saved. They are in formats that are preservable. And then you can do a lot of things out of the materials that are archived. Mm -hmm. Apps, teaching materials, what else? So um, storybooks. So there's a lot of things that you can do also for the community and then to give back. Outreach materials. Outreach materials too. And you can also create DVDs. If the community doesn't have community um, internet access, mm-hmm. uh, you can create DVDs with the recordings that you have done and share them with the community. Yeah. But maybe you have something, you want to add something. Because this is the experience that I, I'm, I was... Working with the European community with the internet access, it doesn't mean that they are going to the archive Hmm. because most of the archives uh, have their interfaces in English and then they cannot access the materials very well. So we also need to guide them into discovering the materials in the archive. This is the other part. Maybe we could do this discussion later. Yeah, this could Uh, be a whole episode about archiving. But maybe, yeah, you can say something about how to use the materials from your Mm -hmm. own perspective. Yeah,
2: Right. In fact, the, the communities I work with, they mostly, or at least part of the population, does have access to, to Wi-Fi, mm-hmm. to the internet. They, they can read in English, so that's not an issue. So the internet does work in my case, as it works in your case, mm-hmm. I guess. Yes. Which means that whatever we're saying here about uh, using the internet to disseminate our, our materials doesn't really apply to all situations. Mm-hmm. It applies to ours, right? And if it does, then it's a good way to do it. It's a good way to share. One thing that I've um, before I, I go deeper into that question, one thing that I've done with my latest research project, which is uh, which was conducted in Sri Lanka and has an ethnomusicological component mm-hmm. as well, was to create a Facebook page where you know where we share all sorts of uh, information about the collection and the updating uh, and the um, uploading to the archive and all that. And every now and then we'll we'll cut a, a little clip of a musical performance, and we post it. And those are, of course, as you would expect, especially popular, and mm-hmm. and it's a good way to introduce people to the documentation and to the archive, yeah. right? So it's a good way to yeah. invite them into the archive so they can um, search for other things.
0: Yeah. And that's a website that they will already have familiarity with, right? If you're using Facebook, they already know how to use Facebook, so it kind of bridges the gap in a way.
2: And Facebook is only one of the platforms you can use, of course, if yeah, yeah. the others that people... Are aware of, but it's uh, interesting what Vera was saying. The making the data available in the archive is the ideal situation, of course, and that's what we should be aiming for. But in my experience, so I've, I've conducted three different documentation projects, and their nature was different. And the result of the, what I did with the work, with the materials afterwards was also different. So, um, I think I'd like to combine this question of how do you make the material available with another question that one of your listeners sent, which had to do with what do people prioritize ah, yes. when they're doing documentation? Yeah. Because things are usually tight, mm-hmm. right? And they depend a lot on how you design your project from the start, right? What's your intention and, um, whether you are planning from the beginning to make it available in an archive, if you have, Establish the contacts with the archive to make sure that you can do it or not. Mm-hmm. And very often, for I think a lot of people who do fieldwork for the first time, and definitely for me, fieldwork was tied to grammar writing, so to uh, linguistic documentation, and that produces a very different set of materials, which may not be the ideal ones if you decide that your documentation project from the beginning is going to be made available, right? Yeah. So that's what happened with me in my first two uh, projects. This is what I was doing. I was interested mostly in linguistic description. So, you know, my materials include a lot of elicitation sessions, (laughs) questionnaires, you know things which are perhaps boring if you're not necessarily <laughs> <laughs> but they're they're they right? also
1: worth for the archive because other researchers can work with them so when Absolutely. we are talking about the dissemination of our research results it doesn't mean that you only have to do um, have to, do, to deal with conversations and, yeah. and naturalistic data of course this elicitation yeah. part of our research is also a component that other int- is interesting for other researchers so
2: it is so and it is I,
1: worth archiving it. It's the
2: only it one. is. Yeah. It is. And I'm, I'm happy that I recorded it because a lot of people perhaps don't record their, their elicitation sessions. They just uh, write down what yeah. they hear. I decided to record them and that's been not only useful for me <laughs> afterwards. When I go back, I can go back to the, to the sessions. And you know, if I have any questions, the data is there, but it can be archived. Like you're mm-hmm. saying, the thing is that for a lot of people who are doing description mostly, they don't perhaps intend to make the materials available from the beginning, uh, which was my case. So, in fact, this is the thing. And it's interesting that you said that this is also valid for, for an archive, for an online archive. I had these two projects. The first one was in Diu, the second one was in Kerala, and the materials are the same. In one case, I haven't yet been able to process the data to make them available in an archive. But in the second case, I'm doing that now. So I'm going back to to that material Mm -hmm. and I'm preparing or processing the data so that it can be uploaded to ELI, to the Endangered Languages Archive. And that is a lot of work, of course. So it's different from the third project, which was always intended to go to that specific archive, which means that all my all the transcriptions, annotations, etc., were done in a way that was compatible with the archive.
0: From uh, the beginning.
2: From the beginning. So and that makes a difference.
1: There is another other thing connected to elicitation because, I, as you said, several researchers think, okay, elicitation is not interesting enough for other people. Mm-hmm. But in my case, for instance, I have done also elicitation, of course. Mm-hmm. All of us do elicitation, right? <laughs> and um, the community was using the elicitation sessions to create uh, vocabulary lists that they could use for uh, the teaching at the local school. So this, this is also another part, another profit that is connected to the community uses of the use of the material. So we should not underestimate the value of the elicitation, even though it is not the ideal scenario for the documentation, but it's part of it. And all of us do elicitation, mm-hmm. but maybe we can think about strategies of using the elicitation in, a, out of the linguistic context. We know it is a linguistic communicative event, but it can be used for other purposes out of the linguistic research domain. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, yes, yeah. 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 yeah, definitely. There's another practical issue: if you have these materials lying around which were never meant to be made available online, and then you want to do it, another practical issue is that perhaps you will have to search for consent or uh, obtain consent a posteriori, yeah. which is an effort, of course, oh, but yeah. it's worth doing it yeah. if you're uh, if you can. Make your materials available widely, yeah. mm-hmm. but you shouldn't um, underestimate how much work that is as well. Yeah.
1: yeah, you're right. So if you don't plan to archive from the beginning on, then you have like one year or more of work to prepare your materials for the archive. So yeah. if the listeners want to collect data they sh- and think that they want to archive the materials, they should design a strategy from the beginning on. That's I think right. this is the best advice I can give. That's yeah.
2: Right. Yeah and if you're doing if you're doing a documentation project from the beginning that you that's not necessarily tied to grammar writing and you just want to create a large enough corpus to be uh, put online the kind of materials you collect and the kind of topics you raise and the diversity of uh, not only subjects but also consultants and their sociolinguistic profiles is also different so doing a, a large scale documentation project on the one hand or doing something that's very very specifically tied to grammar description is going to result in different things yeah. and that's the way it is yeah. Right?
0: yeah yeah. that second question that you were speaking about is the next one actually and this question is from Lauren and she wrote I'm always interested in finding out what people prioritize in their documentation work and why especially in the face of increasingly unrealistic expectations of what a project can achieve also anecdotes about food
2: <laughs> <laughs> those are different things
1: yeah <laughs> But I think I'm going in the same lines um, as Hugo went because, of course, it depends on what your personal goals are and what you want to achieve with documentation. And for several of us, when we are starting fieldwork or doing fieldwork for the first time, is for our PhD or our master. So we have a very clear goal in mind. And the kind of data that we're going to collect depends on what we want to research or do research yeah. on. So it's completely different in what stage you are doing the field work. if it's a major documentation project or if it's a small grant and you are starting now and you don't have experience. So it, it depends. And this is from the perspective of the researcher. And then we have also the perspective of the community. So what is important for the community? For instance, in my case, when I was documenting Mindrico, and we have a limited time spent to do the documentation project, so You cannot document everything. So you need to focus your research also or your documentation on topics that are important for the community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For instance, in my case, it was textile industry because the language emerged in the context of textile industry, language of everyday communication and um, religious events social events in general and religious events that were were a part of the the events that I wanted to collect. And why? Because I have discussed with the community what they wanted to collect and what they wanted to make available to the general public. So what to prioritize? On the one side, it depends on what you want to do with the data, your own interest, your research interest in your career. And we are like focused on our career, of course, Mm -hmm. when you're doing the research. And on the other side, we try to combine it with the priorities that the community wants to see in the documentation. So I think this is a mixture of both things. Mm -hmm. And that you cannot say, you should prioritize only this or only that. It depends on the context. It depends on the situation and it depends on the community you are working with.
2: One other factor, I think, uh, which is also relevant here is how much work has already been done on that language in the past. Yeah. Because those projects that I mentioned in which I was doing grammar writing and and linguistic description were on languages that had no description at all. Mm -hmm. So there was really nothing else I could do than focus on on these instruments of of, um, grammar elicitation and vocabulary elicitation and things like that. Whereas in the third project on Sri Lanka, this is a language that had had some descriptive work done in the Mm -hmm. past, which means that, you know, first of all, it's, it makes it possible for you to have some knowledge of the language before you go to the field,
1: which helps a lot. Which helps a lot.
2: (laughs) It makes it much easier for you to transcribe and annotate your data, Mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, a lot of uh, descriptive, the descriptive labels are already available for you. And so, it allows you to focus on other things, on, for example, making sure that your collection is varied and covers a lot of topics and things yeah. like that. So, that's another factor, I think.
0: Yeah. yeah. Anecdotes about food. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not sure, I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm, I was trying to think of some anecdotes about food. I mean, they eat snails in mommy. So, uh-huh. that's...
1: Kind of exciting. So the places where I did field work, they are not so spectacular in terms of food or so diverse in terms of food that I would say, oh, this is really good antidote to tell to everyone. What was the best thing that you ate on field work? Whoa. Mm. This is a really difficult question.
2: (laughs) You know, if you if you work in a place like India or Sri Lanka, you really can't pinpoint. The food is so good overall. yeah, so
1: I don't think I can pick something and tell you this was the best food ever that I ate during field work. Mm-hmm. It really depends. So on your taste, own taste, and yeah. no. So I had no bad experience. So bad experience that I felt bad afterwards. I only have to eat a lot. So <laughs> this was the issue. So eating a lot all when the you're time when I was home. In, yeah I was invited to the places where I did the recordings to the families and they were just feeding me all the time. Yeah. And <laughs> this, was, this is what one of the issues I had to deal with. But yeah. that was one of my biggest issues is I was staying
0: with an amazing host family that would make three amazing meals for me every day. And then I would go to the speaker's homes who also made amazing, fantastic food. And yes. there's no option not to eat it. You have to, you have to eat everything. So every day I was feeling sick. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's an issue. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, I'm always excited when people invite us over for for food because I know it's going to be great. Yeah, I mean, uh, normally because I, I spend a long time in in um, in the field and I don't always stay with families. Mm-hmm. I end up eating in restaurants, which is fine, right? Or cooking at home if I if I end up uh, renting a place where I can do that. But you know, then when you go home to some of your informants. Um, House, it's uh, you know, it's going to be spectacular, yeah, and it doesn't fail,
0: never fails. (laughs) Next question from Sarah What are some problems or benefits to using a facilitator language? Uh, I think she means working language, i.e., a language that you both speak, but it's
1: not the target language. The working language, Mm. were you using Portuguese when you were doing the the field work in in Sri Lanka?
2: No, yeah, well, all, all three. Communities are different in that respect. Yeah. Because in one of them, wait, should I should I explain a little bit about the project? Yeah, of course. Go ahead. Yeah. So the thing is, I work with communities that speak Portuguese-based Creoles, right? And that makes it that always makes it very sensitive to use Portuguese, which in in many places is seen as a norm, and places a lot of pressure on Mm. on the performance of the speakers. But I did that in three different locations, and Portuguese was only known in one of them. So in the others, it, it wouldn't have been a, an option. In this first one where Portuguese was known and I could have used it with some people as a, as a contact or a facilitator language, I decided not to. And I used English instead to stay away from that uh, potential problem of interference. Yeah. Right? In the other cases, the initial contact language was always English because that's what was available to all of us. But it's always ideal to learn the language as soon as possible and start conducting your interviews and even your elicitation in um, in that language as soon yeah. as possible.
1: Yeah. So I had the experience with Mijico because the community, the speaker community, is really small. So and I have only twenty four now, unfortunately, twenty one fluent speakers, and the majority of the speakers are active speakers, but they could switch all the time. So. If I use Portuguese, mm. they will continue in Portuguese straight away. They don't switch to Mindrico again. So I had to learn the language before. I was working with the language already before. So I, in order to conduct the interviews and all the elicitation and everything, I had to use Mindrico because I knew if I start with Portuguese, they will switch immediately to Portuguese and will not con- go back to Mindrico. And in Fala, it was interesting because they knew that I don't speak Fala. And we had someone from Spain doing fieldwork with us. And she was interviewing, she, she was from Sevilla and Fala is spoken in, so the region are not, is not far away from Sevilla. And when the girl that was with us was interviewing them in Spanish, they will immediately, they will immediately switch to Spanish and they would not use Fala. With me, they tried to use Fala because it was more similar to Portuguese. So I could speak Portuguese and use Portuguese as a facilitator language, but it, it was not a language that I could speak Portuguese. They couldn't speak Portuguese, but they would understand it perfectly, and they would reply in Fala because it's much closer to the language. If uh, we use Spanish for that, they would switch to Spanish immediately. And in Bavarian, it was interesting because you can use uh, can use standard German, High German, and they would speak Bavarian. It doesn't matter; they don't care. They just speak Bavarian. Mm-hmm. So, but the only language that I had in common when I was doing the fieldwork in Bavaria was was German. So but it didn't add no kind of interference. But it has to do also with the identity of the speakers and how confident they feel in the language, how how they identify the language and how they deal with the language on everyday communication as well. With the Mindricos, they don't use it in everyday communication anymore, so the tendency is to use Portuguese. How do you deal with social or other types of
0: power imbalances while doing fieldwork?
2: <laughs> with care.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: and diplomacy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I think there, are, there are at least two ways in which power differences can impact your, your work or the, the other kind of data that you obtain. One is if it limits access to part of the population for some reason. So if part of the population is off limits for whatever reason. And the other is whether, uh, if there's, um, the, if there are certain registers, registers which people think are not appropriate or substandard, or something like that. So the way you deal with these problems is different, I think. I'm not sure what, what your experience is, but my approach to the first one, so how, how do you work with the established power structures, but also make sure that it's, this doesn't limit your access to the whole of the population, has been to be very open about the need to talk to everyone from the beginning. So I, I don't, I've never tried to circumvent these power structures, you know association presidents or uh, or those members of the communities who are usually seen or perceived as uh, spokespersons for, for the community. I work with them for sure because they're as relevant as anyone else. But I uh, also always try to make it clear from the beginning that I will also be working with other people and that it has to be like that mm-hmm. uh, because otherwise the quality of yeah. the materials and the, the success of the project is at stake. And it's, it's worked fine for me.
1: I I did exactly the same. So um in these small communities you have always a spoke person and, and the one that they recognizes the one that represents the community. And sometimes even the uh, the representatives advise you to work with people that, and then you notice these are not the right people to work with, or for some reasons, for several reasons, because they are not interested, because um, the knowledge of the language is not what you need for a particular moment in time. Mm-hmm. But I try to always work with everybody, so as many people as I could. And in a small community with so uh, less fluent speakers, you really have to use all everybody that you have around. So. Yeah, but this is it. I have done exactly the same as you have done. So. Yeah.
2: you should not go against uh, the people who hold uh, some sort of prestige or power. I yeah. mean, that's not that's not uh, advisable at all. <laughs> Just make sure that you're not limited to what they offer you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also perhaps important to realize that you, as a researcher, also come with an image of power, yes. whatever yeah. it is, from the yes. beginning. And if if I go back to that first uh, project of mine where I was working in in this community speaks of Portuguese Creole, but also has or also has some knowledge of Portuguese and attributes some linguistic prestige to Portuguese. Me as a native speaker of Portuguese had to first of all break that barrier, which takes time and you know, it, it can only be done by debunking linguistic myths um, and stereotypes making sure or making it clear to to the people you're working with that you you have no intention of ridiculing their way of speaking on on the contrary and that takes time that takes uh, the building of trust before you can actually do that kind of work because you do have power whatever it be it can be high or low but you yourself will will as an outsider even as an outsider will be Awarded some sort of positioning that power
1: structure. And I think it is really important for people that are doing field work to be aware of that. Yeah. Because we are in a position of power, as you say. It doesn't matter if it's a high power or low power or high prestige, low prestige, but we have this yeah. kind of power. Mm-hmm. And we need to be aware of it because this can influence dramatically the way the community trusts you and the way you build your relationship to the community. Yeah. yeah.
0: You've been listening to the first half of my discussion with Hugo Cardoso and Vera Ferreira. Next week, we'll be finishing answering listener questions, including our advice on how to handle particularly difficult recording situations and how to reduce your environmental impact whilst in the field. You've been listening to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. This podcast is hosted and produced by Martha Satsui-Billens with production help from Laura Satsui. Our music is by Lobo Loco, and our logo is by Eville Designs. If you have a question or fieldwork experience to share, you can email us at fieldnotespod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ling If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an Apple Podcast review. Thanks for listening.